Welcome to ELR, Legal Search, and Lawyer Brain's first discussion, designed to help firms build a successful lateral acquisition and integration strategy. I'm Susan Parker, and I'm here with Tim Reagan, one of the founders of ELR Search, and Dr. Larry Richard, the founder of Lawyer Brain. Today's episode will focus on how the psychology of uncertainty impacts the design of successful lateral acquisition and integration strategies. But before we begin, let me tell you a little bit about our expert. Dr. Larry Richard is recognized as the leading expert on the psychology of lawyer behavior. He has advised dozens of AMLA 200 law firms on leadership, management, and other aspects of strategic talent management. Widely known as an expert on lawyer personality, he's gathered personality data on thousands of lawyers. Dr. Richard is a graduate of the University of Pennsylvania Law School. He practiced law as a trial attorney for 10 years, and then he earned his PhD in psychology from Temple University. For more than 20 years, he's provided consulting services exclusively to the legal profession. And in 2011, he established Lawyer Brain, which focuses on improving lawyer performance through personality science. And he focuses on things like resilience, change management, leadership, and talent issues as he helps law firms succeed. Larry, Tim and I are very excited to have you here. Welcome. Thank you, Susan. Glad to be here. So tell me what you mean about the psychology of uncertainty. Well, let's start with a very simple idea. All human beings have certain levels that we pay attention to. Some of you and your listeners may be familiar with an idea that's quite old in psychology, it goes back to the 1950s, which is Maslow's hierarchy. Maslow had this idea that before we can pay attention to things like being friendly and you know having a good weekend with our colleagues and friends, we have to pay attention to the fundamentals, which for him were survival first. We're not going to do anything if our survival is in doubt. That's where all of our attention and energy is going to go. And then after that, our well-being, even if we've survived, if it's still, if there's still a threat on the horizon to our well-being where we might get hurt or something else, we're going to pay attention to that and so forth and so on. So we don't get to the fun stuff until we've dealt with the things that keep us alive and well. And the mechanism in our brain that scans our environment 24-7 to check for threats is a set of two identical organs, one on each side of the brain called the amygdala. And the amygdala are in turn wired to several other circuits. And I call this whole set of circuitry simply the brain's threat sensing circuit. Every one of us has that circuit and that circuitry is operating 24-7 in the background, awake or asleep, to scan our environment, and it's asking the question, metaphorically, it's asking, is there a threat in my midst? If so, how serious is that threat? In any case, is there anything I can do about that threat? Those are the types of questions that it asks. Now, every now and then, it's going to detect some sort of a threat, and it's going to react often behind the scenes, because low-level threats don't really require us to shift our attention to the threat. Say you're driving on the highway and you hit a rumble strip or you know the edge of the roadway, something like that. 
you'll make a course correction without even thinking about it. You'll, you won't even you know, stop talking. You just keep going. But your brain makes an adjustment to address that low-level threat. Now, we know from neuroscience research that the main mechanism that our brain's threat-sensing circuitry uses to detect a threat is change. Anything that's constant, predictable, familiar, doesn't trigger the circuit. To the extent that something occurs that is different, unexpected, changing, it triggers that circuit. So while we're talking right now, suppose someone were to make a loud, unexpected noise, and we don't know, is it a gunshot or a truck backfiring or what? I guarantee at that moment, that will prioritize our threat sensing response to the highest level, what I call red alert, because that was a sudden and unexpected departure from the norm. It was a change. So there are three types of change that will kick us up to red alert status. The one I've already mentioned is something sudden and unexpected. Also, if the change is something that's outside of our control. And the third one is if the change is something that threatens death or serious bodily harm. All those three properties, we only need one of them to trigger us into red alert, but all three of them have been operating from time to time during the pandemic. So. Everyone has their amygdala on high alert. We're overstressing our threat sensing apparatus. And it's as a result, it's hypersensitive. They've actually done studies showing that the organ itself has hypertrophied. It's grown physically larger and more sensitive to threats. So we're hair trigger at this point. Also, that circuit probably evolved to respond to what we call episodic threats. Picture us back in cave days, right? And we're, we're in our cave, we're minding our own business, we're playing backgammon or Parcheesi or, or you know, Sudoku in the cave, whatever they played back then. And there's a, a roar outside the mouth of the cave that sounds like a saber-toothed tiger. And immediately the hair on the back of our neck stands up and we're all like shifting our attention to survival mode. What was that and how do I escape it? But that threat is over in minutes. Either we're dinner for the, the tiger, and we, we don't care because we're done, or we've escaped because we you know, did fight, flight, or freeze. And then we resume our normal behavior, our normal heartbeat returns, our normal respiration returns, and so forth. But that's not what we have today. What we have today is not an episodic threat that's over in a minute. We have an open-ended threat where we never know when we can achieve closure, when can we let out that sigh of relief? We're not at that point even today. Even with all the vaccinations that people have had, even with all the exposure for those who've gotten COVID, we still wake up every day with some pundit saying, well, there could be a new variant out there on the horizon. There could be some version of this that uh, defeats the, the vaccines and the antibodies that we've discovered so far. So that's a source of uncertainty. And not to mention, the pandemic played havoc with the economy. It had winners and losers. Certain companies like Amazon did very well in the pandemic. Other companies like cruise ship lines were really tested and some went out of business because of the economic turmoil that the pandemic caused. We're still seeing repercussions from that today. On top of that, 
We have political unrest all around the world that is unnerving to a lot of people. We have extreme climate change that's causing havoc in a lot of quarters around the world. And that's just the big stuff. Then there's all the usual sources of threat, uncertainty, and change that we all have to contend with. So we're in a time right now where our threat circuits are operating 24-7. And what that means for us, there is a physiological, predictable response that human beings have when our threat circuit is constantly being triggered. Number one, in order to answer the questions, I mentioned earlier that our our threat circuit is kind of asking these very fundamental questions. Is there a a serious threat? You know, how serious is it? What can I do about it? Those are intellectual questions. And our brains have an intellectual region called the prefrontal cortex. I call it the part of your brain that went to law school. That portion of our brain is what does all of the analytical thinking. And most of the time, we're pretty good at using that part of our brain. And in fact, it's fun to do. It's one of the reasons people go into law, because we get to use that prefrontal cortex. However, when the threat is asserting itself, when the threat circuitry is activated, it actually knocks on the door metaphorically of the prefrontal cortex and says, excuse me, can I borrow a cup of intellectual horsepower? I have a priority for it over here in the threat operation, and those take priority over anything else. When the threat circuitry calls on the prefrontal cortex, the the seat of the intellect, the subjective experience that we have is we feel tired, or we feel distracted or distractible, or we feel edgy, or we feel fuzzy. I can't think straight. And the reason for that is is quite real. It's because we're actually not using our full intellectual horsepower at that moment because part of it's been recruited to another part of the brain. No one tells us. It's not like the brain sends a little voice in your head that says, oh, I'm using part of your intellect right now. You don't know that that's happening. All you know is that you just don't feel your 100% self And this has quite important implications for the workplace. I was just thinking about how all of what you've said really applies to myself. And then, you know, Tim and I work with a lot of candidates and we're noticing those kinds of differences, right? Where people don't seem as sharp or, you know, they're dealing with a lot of anxiety and change issues. And we're noticing that impact both within our circle of candidates that we've known a long time and some new folks that we're meeting. That is not in the least surprising because this is a fairly universal phenomenon. One of the things I suspect, I don't have any data to confirm this, but here's what I suspect. There's been a lot of writing recently in the trade press about boomerang lawyers, lawyers who leave the firm, go somewhere else, and then three, four, six months later, they come back to their old firm. This hasn't happened in the numbers that we're seeing it right now ever before. Why is this happening? I think what might explain this is, imagine you're trying to do your work as a lawyer and you're feeling every day distractible, irritable, angry, frustrated, tired, depleted, foggy. And you start going, why do I feel this way? There's nothing obvious. There's no visible explanation for that. It must be I'm in a lousy job. So I'm going to quit my job and I'm going to go somewhere else. 
And lo and behold, I go somewhere else. And after two or three or four weeks go by, I feel like, hey, I'm having the same problem here. And I don't have my friends from the old place. So what do people do? They go back. Because they don't realize that it wasn't the job. It was the the psychological and physiological effects of uncertainty that was causing their distress. How do we help people when they come over, right? How do we help them integrate, particularly in an environment of this incredible change, this uncertainty that they're dealing with, to really think about how do we best integrate people so that they can be successful and happy here? Sure. And I kind of divide that into three sets of interventions that we have to do. If we're an employer of lawyers, which is to say a lawyer employer, then we have three things that we need to do. The first we're talking about today and the other two will reserve some future conversations to talk about. So the first one is really understanding the psychology of uncertainty and the physiological effects that it has on us and what we can do about it, which I'll talk about in a moment. The second is since we're all wrestling with how and when do we return to work and to what extent do we return to work? Returning to work is a topic that we need to talk about because we've spent up to two years working remotely or working hybridly. And initially that was a big adjustment for people because we weren't used to it. But now having done it for so long, we've habituated, we've created a new habit. Human beings, our brains have another feature, which is they don't like to do repetitive actions by using the valuable real estate of the brain, which is to say the, the part that thinks. Once we realize we're going to do something repetitively, we send it off to a region of the brain that's uh, called the basal ganglia. And its job is to just do repetitive behaviors. They don't have to use conscious uh, attention to think about. So take a handshake, for example. We've done handshaking so many times if somebody extends their hand, we don't stop and go, oh, I see you're extending your hand. I suppose I should grab it, shake it up and down three times and let go and then say something socially appropriate. I mean, that would be exhausting if we had to do that every time. We just shake the hand and do the, all the other stuff as an automated routine. And that's all basal ganglia operating. Well, the same thing has happened during the pandemic. We've acclimated to the new style of working. And when employers ask workers who have acclimated to return to the previous um, role that they had two years ago, it's not flipping a switch. It doesn't work that way. It's not easy to do. There's a habit that has to be overcome. And so next time we talk, we can talk about that habit. And only then can we talk about integrating and retaining laterals so that they're happy to stay where they are and engaged and they look forward to going to work and all of that. Those, the principles that govern that type of engagement and integration are very powerful and very science-based, but they don't work if you don't address the elephant in the room, which is the effects of uncertainty and the overcoming of the new habituation that we've all experienced. Who actually realize the source of the problem. You know, we all experience the symptoms, but most of us don't know why we're having those symptoms. Um, some people I found don't even notice the symptoms, but people close to them do. You know, Joe hasn't been the same. He's, he, you know, he's 
having trouble finding words. He's slowed down a little bit. He's uh, not as responsive. And Joe says, oh, no, I'm fine. Right. So we've seen variations of denial or not being in touch with uh, the change that this has wrought. But whether you're aware of it acutely or not aware of it or somewhere in between, everyone has to address the consequences of uncertainty if we hope to have a more engaged workplace experience ourselves or for those that we supervise. So how do we deal with uncertainty? Luckily, even though we can't control the external sources that you know, cause these responses of our amygdala, we can do something that's almost as good. And that is we can, in a way, trick our brain or redirect our attention of our brain to things that are by nature quieting of the threat circuit, the threat sensing circuit. Number one, everyone can be more intentional, more mindful about setting clear goals. And I, I'm talking about setting clear goals for the next hour, for today, for the week. There's actually research showing that weekly goal setting is the most effective and the most consistently efficient, and maybe for the year. Each of those levels of goal setting has its own benefit. But, and you should probably do all of them. When you set goals, you want your goals to be clear. That is a third party who doesn't know anything other than they're observing you should be able to detect when you've achieved a goal or not once you tell them what the goal is. If the goal is so fuzzy that they can't tell, like if you say, I'm going to be a better person. Well, how would I know that? How would I know when you've achieved that goal? It's too vague. Uh, number two, it should have a target date. Now, most goals are capable of, you know, aiming at a particular date. Even if they're ongoing, you can say by this point, I will have reached some milestone. Milestones or target dates are useful things because they give clarity to goals. And the, the more clarity, the more the threat sensing circuitry is reassured and quieted down. Number three, when you interact with others, there's a counterpart to your setting goals, and that is setting clear expectations for others. It's the same basic idea. The more clarity you bring, the more you give precision about when, what's expected, what will it look like, what are the interim steps, what are the actual behaviors I'm going to do. And, and this applies to both goal setting and um, you know expectations. We want the, the you know, way we conceive of these things to have not just a target, I'm going to lose 40 pounds by next June, uh, June a year, right? Uh, we want to talk about the steps as well. What are the things I'm going to be doing to get me to that target? Because having individual action steps, research has shown, is a much more powerful way of achieving outcomes than just stating a goal. So, for example, there was a series of studies done about uh, people's intentions to vote in elections. And when they asked people, do you intend to vote? And that was the extent of the inquiry. Those people were less likely when tracked later on during the actual election, they were less likely to have actually voted. Then people were asked the same question, do you intend to vote? And some follow-up questions. What, you know, what time do you tend to go to the polls? 
what, uh, how will you get to the pole? What do you think you'll be wearing when you go to the pole? What route will you take to get there? Um, do you prefer to do anything after you voted? People who answered those types of very concrete questions were way, way more likely to actually vote than the people who were asked the outcome-only question, do you plan to vote? So setting interim steps is a very important component. The next thing that helps to quiet the threat-sensing circuit is exposing yourself to nature. So there's a growing body of research showing that human beings seem to be innately wired to calm down when we're in a natural setting. And if you think about it, no matter how much uncertainty we're experiencing from COVID or from the economy or from extreme weather, nature is pretty constant. When I go out into my garden, it doesn't seem to care if you know Russia is attacking Ukraine. It doesn't seem to care if the market is up or down today. The plants still look the same. The beauty is still the same. The serenity is still the same. And there's something soothing and stable about you know, going into nature. And nature includes gardens, parks, water, you know, water vistas, lakes and oceans and so forth, streams, um, vistas where you can see a long distance, um, forests and arboretums, even houseplants have been shown to have a beneficial effect. So there are a lot of different ways to expose yourself to nature and it's something you can do literally every day and it has a spillover effect. So you might spend 10 minutes, you know, walking in the woods um, or Playing golf is another form of exposure to nature, but it has a carryover effect beyond the actual moments you spent there. So that also benefits people. Next, um, finding things in your life that are stable and predictable. It could be a person that's rock solid and you can always count on them. It could be something that uh, you know you do if if. Uh, you know, you live in a town where where the the whistle blows at noon every day, or you know, church bells ring at nine, or you have a grandfather's clock that goes off every hour. Pay attention to things that have routine, periodicity, regularity, and when you pay attention to them, again, it quiets the threat circuitry. The last two suggestions I have are routine and ritual. Now, they share some things in common, but they're different. Routine, you can think of as repeated behaviors that accomplish something important to you. So we have routines like we all brush our teeth. Everybody has a routine for how you do that. It's a regular thing. We don't even think about it. It's habituated. Routines have the quality of being regular. And when we do something regular, whether it's brushing our teeth or creating a meeting every Monday at nine, or you know, saying a particular thing at the beginning of every meeting, or you know, starting your work week by doing something idiosyncratic, whatever the routine is, when you make it a regular repeated behavior, it has that same quieting effect for the brain's threat circuit. Finally, when you take a routine and turn it into a ritual. And technically speaking, there are some 
non-routinized behaviors that can become rituals too. So let's talk about rituals. Rituals are basically behaviors that tend to be repeated and they have some meaning and significance to the participants. So we have rituals around birth, around rites of passage when you pass a certain age or milestone, around graduating school, around engagements and weddings, death, around getting a job, last day of a job. All these things have rituals. And we can create other rituals that have personal significance to us or group significance if you want to do it in the office. Because when we create rituals, because there's this element of meaning associated with the ritual, it engages the emotions, which makes them easier to remember and more widespread in their impact on you. They affect not only the amygdala and the threat sensing circuit, but they affect several other emotional regions of the brain, which are beneficial. So we all tend to benefit from having these rituals. And you can combine these various things. You know, set a clear goal in a ritualistic way. If you start combining goal setting with rituals, now you elevate the goal setting to something emotional that's very memorable and more likely to get repeated uh, and so forth. So these are, you know, kind of a short list of things that are all within our control. Every one of them is evidence-based. There's solid empirical research behind them. And they all work in the direction of quieting our threat circuit so that despite the external uncertainty, we can go about our work with the fullest amount of our capacity available as possible. So Larry, I think these are great strategies for candidates to, to calm and quiet. But as we speak to candidates, I think some firms, they're not all created equal and some firms have handled COVID very poorly. That, and, and that goes in all times, not just in COVID. And, and they're looking across the street and they're seeing firms that have handled the situation much more appropriately. How would you advise a candidate considering making a lateral move now? Would you, one, counsel that candidate to make the lateral move and once there, implement some of these calming techniques? Or would you have that candidate stay where he or she is and implement those techniques? My guess is the first, but as the expert, you tell us. So it's really kind of a both and answer. Um, what I mean by that is this, the, the techniques I've talked about to this point, I would wait until after the move has been made to the new firm, because those are techniques that basically are trying to respond to uncertainty, especially to uncertainty in the external environment that we can't control. They're mitigated to some extent by the internal things that we can create that give us a feeling of certainty, you know, nature and setting clear goals, rituals, routines. Those are things that can quiet the threat circuit down. You don't want to waste those good routines for before you make the move if you know you're only going to introduce more uncertainty. So you might as well do them afterward. However, there are other kinds of reassuring and stress-reducing steps that a person can take once they know they're about to make a move because they know they're going to increase the level of uncertainty. And what can they do? They can rehearse anything that's needed that might be a step along the way toward the new move. So if they are applying for a job and they need to do some interviews, they can rehearse those interviews. They can practice with somebody. Um, they can use what I call an anchor to 
create uh, kind of a, a built-in response to calm from a previous moment in their life that they can call forward when they get into a situation of stress. So uh, I've talked to you guys in the past about how uh, in my time in graduate school, I went uh, with my class once to a retreat in a beautiful um, forest area where there was a waterfall and a, a beautiful setting. And it was just one of those perfect days. And I anchored that in several different ways. That is, I created physiological things that reminded me of being in that moment. So years later, I could trigger those physiological things like closing my, my hand in a, in a fist reminded me, just because I associated in the original experience, reminded me of being in that moment. And so even if I'm in a stressful moment now, if I go back to that moment where I was in the mountain clearing with the waterfall, I'm instantly transported back to a moment of serenity. And that does a goes a long way to offsetting any stress I may be feeling now, whether it's the stress of a job interview or thinking through the implications of changing my job or who do I tell about this when, all of that stuff can be anxiety provoking, but calling forth a previous experience of calm and serenity can act as an offset that helps you maintain your cool. So those are things that you could do before making the move. And the things that I discussed moments ago about quieting the uncertainty circuit, those are things you can do once you get to the new place. And how can the new firm help the lateral with those types of solutions, if you will? So great question. Firms can do a lot to reassure new candidates. The first thing is most law firms do, let's face it, a lousy job of onboarding new candidates. They simply do the ministerial things necessary. Here's your key card to get in the building. Here's a computer. Here's phone numbers for the help desk. Here's your desk. Here's where the restroom is. And they leave somebody at that point feeling like kind of anticlimactic. It's like, that's it? What do the best companies do? The best companies personalize that first day at work by making it about the person. They'll find out something about the individual, about what their strengths are, what makes them great, what gives them pleasure. And they'll do something memorable with the whole team that spotlights the individual and explains to the rest of the team what makes this person so great. Why are we so glad that we hired them? And they'll give that person, the new hire, a chance to experience some form of positivity during that moment that's memorable. Organizations that do that have a dramatically lower quit rate six months down the road because they prioritize valuing the individual from day one and they don't make it an anticlimactic experience, they make it a memorable experience. It also helps to introduce the new individual to others, lowers the anxiety that always occur when people are in a new place and increases people's awareness. All of those are good things. That's thing one that an employer can do is to, is to use one of the onboarding techniques that prioritizes the individual. A great reference for this is 
either of the most recent books by Dan Cable, C-A-B-L-E, at the London Business School. One, I believe, was called Alive at Work. Those are excellent references for that type of thing. Also, employers can do some of the same things I recommended for individuals. They can create routines and rituals that help integrate the new individual. They can make goals for that new individual very, very clear, and they can can set clear expectations for the individual. They can make it clear what is expected of you, who is responsible for you, is there some supervisor, you know, how do we do things around here? The more points at which a new employer can clarify what's expected of an individual, the more they lower the threat temperature and help that person feel comfortable quickly. How does a firm carry that forward? What do they do on day two? What do they do on day 20? What do they do six months from now? So the, if you think about this as um, the same principles carried through time, these principles are, are timeless principles. So it's not like you set goals on day one and then you go, okay, we're finished with day one. We'll never set goals again. You, you want to highlight the goals and also invite the individual to set some of their own goals. You know, most good performance management systems don't dictate goals to an individual. They help the individual to set their own goals. And they also, there's an article I'm working on right now that highlights the research surrounding the question that you just asked him. And that is, it, it looks at the research that says people perform the best, they're most productive, they're most profitable, they're most engaged, they're most likely to stay in an organization when they personally feel like they are cared for, valued, respected, and recognized. And so a lot of us in supervisory roles have this idea in our head that the main thing we do as supervisors is try to get the best out of people. How do we get something from them? As opposed to bring out the best in somebody so that they, the person that I'm supervising, has a terrific experience. It's a subtle difference, but one is how do I get, quote, the best? How do I get something out of this person, which is really for us, the firm, or for me, the supervisor, versus what can I do to prioritize the experience of the individual? And in a future session, we're going to talk about some of the engagement research that actually allows us to do that. But for today's purposes, I just want to suggest that the mindset shift itself from getting something from a new hire to what can we do to make the new hire's experience spectacular? If you just start with that come from, everything that you do is likely to be the right thing. You know, you've really given us a lot to think about how to mitigate some of the change that happens to us and and deal with the psychology of uncertainty. Next week, I hope that everyone joins us when Dr. Larry Richard will be talking about the psychology of habit formation. 